You are listening to the Jack Shit Show with Kelsey Henderson. Well, guys, we're going to be doing it a little bit different this week. I am putting trigger warnings right up top. No funny business. I hope that you have heard about and have started educating yourself on the 215 children, babies, found in a mass grave outside of the Kamloops Residential School. Every single uh, statement that I've seen that has come out um, from our First Nations communities has said we are going to find a heck of a lot more of these. Um, And I think it's really, really important that we start educating ourselves on it. Um, I personally signed up for the University of Alberta offers a free Coursera um, course called... um, I think I have to double check what it's called, but I will put the link. I think it's called um, Indigenous Canadian or something like that. Um, I'll double check. But it's a free course that you can sign up for and just do in your own time. I think, um, and I'd love all of you to do it with me. Um, This is not, this is not my issue to speak on. I don't get a voice um, unless you are directly affected by the residential school system. Um, You also don't get a choice. This is really our time to sit down and listen. But um, I have somebody really cool lined up who is going to come on and she's going to do the most amazing job educating us about um, the residential school system as well as missing and murdered Indigenous women. Um, But this week, we're just going to do a little bit of homework and you are going to do homework with me. So it's a little bit of a different structure this week. Bear with me. We are going to, um, I'm just going to read you a couple of articles that I have found um, relevant to just starting to learn about what has been going on um, in this country for a really long time. Um, yeah, it's a little bit of a different setup this week, but I think that it's really important. And so let's figure this out. So first of all, let's talk about this mass grave that they found in Kamloops. Um, there's a couple of things that I really want to note. Um, first of all, as far as anyone can tell so far, these um, babies, children, some as young as three years old, um, are undocumented deaths, which means that their families had no idea what happened to them, no idea where they went. There is no, no death certificates, no funerals. Um, they're completely have been unspoken for up until now. Um, and the second thing I wanted to point out, which I thought was really, um, important was that the, um, first nation community up there, they actually hired an, carried out this search themselves. They hired a specialist team that did um, ground penetrating radar so that they could find these babies. Um, And it truly shocks me (laughs) 
that we haven't done this already. The government hasn't done this already, hasn't made this immeasurable wrong, at least tried to make it right. I'm going to try and keep my opinion very out of this one. Um, Like I said, this is not my issue to speak on, but it's unfathomable to me that we have mass graves of babies all over this country that we just didn't know about. And by we didn't know about, I mean us, the colonizers, the, the immigrants. We didn't know that these were there. Because if we did, shame on us. Shame on us regardless. But our First Nations people have been telling us that this has happened for ever since it happened. And we have still... Our, that's the first mass grave we've found. And I, every statement that I've seen says we're getting more. We will have more. There will be one at every single residential school. I'm fired up about this. And so I hope you're going to get fired up about it too, because this is so important. Um, the court, they brought their findings, this First Nation in Kamloops. I'm going to put the pronunciation in the, um, or not the pronunciation, the, the name of this First Nation into the um, description for today, but I cannot pronounce it. I will find someone who can, but I don't. I don't know how to. It's not a language that I speak. Um, they brought their findings to um, BC's chief coroner, um, and they were alerted to it last Thursday. Um, so they are now working collaboratively to tr- try and identify all these kids. Um, they're having to bring in like historians to check up museum logs and all these things. Like it's going to be a huge process. Okay, now we know what's going on. Let's read a couple of articles and a couple of statements that I found quite um, enlightening. This first article is posted by the CBC. It's by Zoe Tennant, and it is called The Dark History of Canada's Food Guide, How Experiments on Indigenous Children Shaped Nutrition Policy. When historian Ian Mosby published evidence that the Canadian government had conducted nutritional experiments on Indigenous children in residential schools, his findings made headlines across the country. In his academic article, Administering Colonial Science, published in 2013, Mosby revealed how nutritional studies and experiments were performed in Indigenous communities and residential schools in the 1940s and 50s. The tests were apparently done, explained Mosby, without the informed consent or knowledge of the Indigenous people involved. What isn't yet widely known, said Mosby, a professor of history at Ryerson University, is how these experiments are directly connected to Canada's food guide. In the 1940s, federal federal bureaucrats, excuse me, found that malnutrition was widespread in Indigenous communities and residential schools, but this wasn't new information to many Indigenous people. Indigenous people had been arguing for a long time that their kids were hungry in residential schools. The government policies were creating conditions of hunger in their communities, explained Mosby. 
the Canadian government began to send researchers to examine these conditions of hunger. In many cases, the researchers found severe malnutrition, said, Ma said Mosby. Some federal bureaucrats and scientists saw the pervasive mal malnutrition and hunger experienced by Indigenous people as an opportunity to test their scientific theories. The Federal Nutrition Services Division was established in 1941 under the leadership of a medical doctor and biochemist named Lionel Pett. Pett was a major player in setting nutritional standards and policy in Canada, said Mosby. Scientific questions were often on Pett's mind, questions like what the daily recommended intake for different vitamins and minerals should be, but there was a controversy over how to determine dietary standards, and it was challenging to do these kinds of studies that were needed to test the questions. It's really difficult to do those kinds of experiments because you need hunger, hu sorry, you need hungry people, said Mosby. When Pett began to uncover these accounts of hunger in Indigenous communities and in residential schools, he saw this as an opportunity to put some of those controversies to the test. Pett oversaw a series of nutritional experiments in Indigenous communities. Among these were long-term study. Uh, um, sorry, among these was a long-term study carried out in residential schools, which used Indigenous study students as experimental subjects. In 1947, Pett began testing different nutritional interventions on close to 1,000 children in six residential schools across the country. These experiments used the baseline of malnutrition and hunger experienced by Indigenous children in the schools as a way to test a whole bunch of both interventions and non-interventions, explained Mosby. They, these experiments included some children who were known to be malnourished, malnourished receiving no changes to their diets in order to act as controls in the experiment. One intervention including, included testing of an experimental fortified flour mixture on residential school students. There was a federal ban on fortified flour at the time, and there was debate over whether or not to legalize it, explained Mosby. Pett and his colleagues introduced an experimental flour mixture which included substances like bone meal. Pett and the researchers found increased incidences of anemia among the students who were uh, fed the experimental flour. The nutritional experiments were part of a larger series of investigations into the diets of Indigenous people during this period, what Mosby described as the federal government's social experiment. They took the extremely racist idea that the indigenous peoples were somehow racially inferior and they suggested that might have to do with nutrition. And so they took it upon themselves to solve this Indian problem through expert intervention into the indigenous people's diets. At the heart of this was this willful attempt to ignore the actual cause of the changes in indigenous people's diets, which was colonialism which was the Indian Act, which was the forced removal of Indigenous peoples from their lands, the limits, placed on in, the limits placed on Indigenous peoples' livelihoods through regulations on hunting and trapping, through the effects of residential schools, all these different elements of the Canadian colonialism, which led to problems with Indigenous peoples' diets. The most important connection between the nutrition ex experiments and Canada's food guide is Lionel Pett, said Mosby. Pett was the architect of Canada's food guide. 
Pet was the primary author of Canada's official food rules, which was introduced in 1942 and was the precursor to Canada's food guide. The nature of the experiments that Pet conducted in residential schools was determined based on a whole series of internal debates among nutrition professionals and bureaucrats about Canada's food guide and about what a healthy and nutritionally adequate, adequate diet looked like. Pet used the opportunity of hungry kids in residential schools who had no choice in what they were going to eat and whose parents had no choice in what they were going to eat to attempt to answer a series of questions that were of interest to him professionally and scientifically. You can draw a direct line between the types of experiments that were being done in residential schools and these larger debates about how they should structure the food guide. What happened to me because of these experiments is a question that Mosby has heard from many residential school survivors. Following the publication of Mosby's 2013 article, which revealed that nutritional experiments were conducted in Indigenous communities and on students in residential schools, Mosby co-authored an article that investigated the long-term health impacts of the widespread, widespread malnutrition and hunger experienced in residential schools. Hunger was never absent. How Residential School Diets Shaped Current Patterns of Diabetes Among Indigenous Peoples in Canada was published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal in 2017 and was co-authored by Mosby and Tracy Galloway, an anthropology professor at the University of Toronto. We found that the food served in residential schools that the level of hunger experienced by kids had long-term health effects not just on survivors themselves but on, also on their children. The long-term impact of that kind of hunger during childhood leads to a whole series of problems, starting with stunting and kids not reaching their growth potential, but leading to a higher in, uh, incidence of type 2 diabetes, a tendency towards obesity later in life, and a whole range of problems that sort of cascade from there. These are the health problems that impact Indigenous people disproportionately in Canada, explained Mosby. There's been a tendency over time to argue that, that there's a genetic basis for this. He said, that ignores the fact a lot of these health conditions are produced by Canadian institutions like residential schools. Mosby hopes this his research puts the lie to the idea that there's somehow an, indi somehow an Indigenous genetic susceptibility to health conditions like type 2 diabetes. In fact, the susceptibility is Canadian colonialism and Canadian colonial policy. What? So you're telling me that in 1996, while we were starting to learn about the food guide, these kids were being tested on. Oh yeah. Did you think that when we were in school... These were not residential school. The last residential school didn't shut down till 1996. When we learned about that, did you not think it was like hundreds and hundreds of years ago? Because I did. And then I had the question, why did it take until 1996 to close down the last residential school in Canada? And luckily for us, Scott Welch, he has the answers. I'm just going to read from his uh, Quora article. Okay, so this is a bit complex, but it will help to get some terminology straight. First, let's understand the concept of a boarding school. This is a school in which the students live at school. This is certainly not particularly unusual. Every country has many of these schools. 
and they are often very prestigious, particularly in the UK, and you'll see why this is important later. Now, Canada has some unique challenges when it comes to education. In particular, there are two very specific issues when it comes to the education of Native Canadians. Many Native Canadians live in extremely small, extremely remote communities. To put this in perspective, I lived in a community which had a population of about 250 people, of which about 40 were school-aged kids. The nearest large town in Iqaluit has a population of 5,000 and is about two hours away by jet. And two, because of some quirks of historical treaties, the Canadian federal government is responsible for education of Native Canadians, while the education of all other Canadians is the responsibility of the provincial governments. So going back about 100 years, the federal government, which was heavily influenced by the UK since we are, are a colony, came up with what seemed to be a very clever plan. They were responsible for educating Native Canadians, but setting up 500 plus K-12 schools in teeny tiny communities and then finding teachers who would actually teach there would be very expensive. So they came up with the idea to set up a network of about 20 boarding schools in Native communities across the countries. Plus, boarding schools were where lots of government ministers and mandarins had gone to school, and they saw this as a normal way to raise kids. These boarding schools were called residential schools. Since they didn't have any expertise at actually running schools, the government outsourced running the schools to the United Anglican Church of Canada and the Roman Catholic Church of Canada. These churches already ran many of the most prestigious boarding schools in the rest of Canada, so it made a fair bit of sense to the government bureaucrats, many of whom again had gone to these schools. Since the official policy of the government at the time was to assimilate Native Canadians and the governments instructed the churches running the schools to actively destroy the Native culture of their students, the goal was to produce, quote, white Indians, end quote, who would, could assimilate into white mainstream Canadian culture. Since all of this was more or less unsupervised because more residential schools were liquidated in the middle of nowhere, not surprisingly, there were teachers and administrators who were on the spectrum from incompetent to serial sexual sadists and predators. Since the parents didn't really want to send their kids who were freaking six years old, he said that on me, 500 or 1,000 miles away to live with sexual sadists, the government came up with the simple expedition expedient of just kidnapping the children in September and returning them in May or June. And yes, kidnapping is the correct word. And I use the word kidnapping purposefully. Our government forcibly removed tens of thousands of innocent kids from their loving parents, carted them off on boats and airplanes, and held them against their will while they gave the parents and children literally no way of communicating. This was done by men with guns and the parents had literally no way of fighting back. Yes, this really happened, and it is beyond shameful. Um, now, starting in the 1960s and 70s, as people started learning about what was going on, the government started shutting down the residential schools. By 1975, the last of the actual residential schools run by churches had closed down. But, and you knew this was coming, right? They still didn't want to pony up the money to put the full K-12 schools in the communities. So what they did was put K-6 schools in the communities and then keep a few rebranded residential schools run directly by the federal government in Yellowknife and Frobisher Bay in Iqaluit. 
If you wanted to attend school past grade six, you could voluntarily go to one of these schools. This was where my friends went to high school, and it was also the reason my parents moved away from the Arctic so that I would not have to go to one of these schools. If you didn't want to go live at one of these schools, which were full of drugs and alcohol and suicide rates of 100 times the national average, your education ended at grade six. Finally, in the mid-1990s, the federal government could no longer shirk their duties and they put full K-12 schools in the communities. Gina Cardinal makes... um, asks an excellent point in the comments. The only thing is that Indigenous uh, people weren't allowed to go to the local school if they lived in town. I know people who lived in towns but couldn't figure out why they had to go hundreds of miles away to go live in a residential school when they could have attended their school right there. It turns out this is part of point two because town schools were funded by provincial taxes. They were provided for people who paid those taxes, but the education of Native Canadians was the responsibility of the federal government, and the federal government was quite convinced of its own superiority, so there was no way in hell it was going to do the logical thing and just pay the provincial governments so that the Native Canadians could do do the simple thing and attend the local school. Believe it or not, this is still happening in some places, although it has largely been rationalized. Same with healthcare, by the way, the feds pay the provincial. I'm going to cut that last bit out, but... Insane. So that timeline helped me kind of narrow down why it didn't end until 1996. Because I was born in 1990. You're telling me these people were in these schools until I was six years old? Like, this did not happen that long ago. And it really gives you a new appreciation for the trauma suffered by this entire community that we basically committed not basically we did we committed a genocide we're finding mass graves that's genocide and this is not even the only issue there's huge issues about missing and murdered indigenous women which we're not even going to get into in this particular episode although don't worry you know i'm going to start talking about it soon um There is just an insane amount of things we didn't know and learning that we need to do. So those are the two articles that I I really wanted um, you to read. And I hope my reading wasn't too annoying. I will link them, of course. Um, The other thing I'm assigning to you as homework is if you can handle it, big if you can handle it because it is... um, Although done very tastefully, it is a very dark subject. There is a movie on um, Amazon Prime called We Were Children. It's the story of two um, indigenous residential school survivors. And then it's the dramatization of the story that they're telling you uh, along with it. So it's very well done. And if you um, are okay to handle that kind of thing... um, I really encourage you to to watch that movie. I watched it last night. Like I said, you can sign up for the um, Coursera course. The course is called Indigenous Canada, and I'm going to put the link to that. You can do it all in your own time. Um, and the other one I is the other resource I'm going to give you right off the hop is 
um, a book called 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act. It's um, written by Bob Joseph. And it's, I haven't read it myself either. So we're starting a little bit of a book club. I am going to order it. Um, and we're going to all read that one together. And then I'm going to put a couple more links. Anyways, I want you guys to go and do your own learning about this. I want you to be upset about it. I want you to get involved in it. I want you to understand why this is an incredibly huge deal. And then we are going to have a really wonderful um, content creator, indigenous content creator, and um, fantastic personality come. And she is going to lend me her voice and she is going to educate the heck out of us on all of this stuff. So... Um, that's your homework for the week. No exciting intro, no exciting outro. This is serious stuff. And I really want us to get, um, our hands really dirty in, in making this right. It's, um, it's a really big deal. So I love you. We, oh my God, every week I say it and (laughs) this week it bodes the most true. We do not know jack shit. We do not know jack shit. Can we please go and try and learn? I love you so much. Go drink some water. Bye.